Hi, this is Larry Pasca, Executive Director of NCSS, the National Council for the Social Studies. This episode features an author published in an NCSS journal. Please enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, you and I are well-versed in the literature these days after so many theory and research and social education episodes. So we know that that learning styles, like I'm an audio learner oh, or I'm a visual learner, we, we know that's not like how it's like, there's not a lot of science behind that. My students sometimes come up and tell me this and it, I'm like, where are you getting this from? Like, this is not, re- it's, <laughs> where are you getting well, this and from? I'm always, I always ask them what it means because then, I mean, usually you get to kind of that they just prefer or learn well if they have visuals, yeah. which is like, that's, that's more reasonable than coming up to me and saying, I am a visual learner. I must be done. This must be done kinesthetically. Yes. I must, I must be moving around to solve this problem. Right. And apparently we only concentrate on the areas we're good at and never grow in any other areas or work on them at all. Dan, why does this myth persist? I don't know. I mean, we just, I think it gets repeated wrong. And I actually don't think all educators, when they talk about learning styles, like mean that there's, you have a learning style that you must learn in all the time and that we must differentiate learning for every student in the class based on, you know, their learning styles. I think most people generally mean that they, they prefer or do well with different things, right? And it's, it's true. Like there was a time in my life when I just could not listen to like audio. I tried to listen to like audio classes. And I just was like too ADHD. And now all I do is listen now to all audio. You do is do. This is a, it's a Gardner thing, right? Well, I think Gardner's stuff is, is a little different. He proposed multiple intelligences. Um, and so, but all of it, I think is a little bit, you know, outdated for sure. But there's no question that having good visuals can be important in a lot of ways. We know, for example, if students are, are learning a second language and they're having to learn in their in, in their second language, it's not their native language, that visuals are very helpful, right? Yeah. To have academic vocabulary up and other things up like that. That's like one thing you can do. How do you, how do you use visuals in your classes? So, so well, I think we've talked about my favorite visual of all time where we kind of break down. It's Napoleon one where he goes to, to Russia and then you can kind of see... So it's in French, and so it's difficult. Well, it doesn't even actually matter because the visual is so damn good. Like, they can just kind of follow, because you can kind of figure out that Moscow, what it is, um, like how they're spelling it. And you can see the troops just like, they go from half a million troops to like 10,000. And so you can see that in this amazing graph. It is, is this an infographic that Napoleon made himself? No, no, but some it? French person did. I have it somewhere. We'll make sure we have it in the show notes. It's from like the 1860s. <laughs> but the visual, it's because it's like a visual, it's a map. There's so much stuff and so many French words, which I don't know. I should learn French. Eight, the 1860s, the decade of visuals. Yes, yes. Where a lot it's of the good so stuff cool. comes from. 
Yeah, I love I love those maps that uh, you know like represent different phenomena. Like I have one that like shows you the population of countries. So it kind of has like the shape of the country slightly, yeah. but then it's by population. So instead of seeing the physical space of a country, oh, you get yeah. a sense of like how many people live in the country. And so we will look at that and kind of do some different work with that. So I love those types of maps. My students and I just the other day were talking about the different purposes maps serve, and they're just so used to seeing political maps that you know are mercator projections that they just they go oh, they right, haven't dealt right. with much else i like the um so speaking of maps of the population i like the one that shows where people in the u.s live and where they're voting compared to like like compared to like you know the the red blue map that you see around the election time but it's really kind of cool to see like where the population actually lives uh and of course that land doesn't vote that's always right it and then I even saw, I think, of, of course, with visuals, the ways the information is understood is so important, right? Because I remember seeing um, it used as misinformation where it would show the map of the United States and where people voted. Well, obviously, rural areas, Republicans do very well. So that was very red. And so people make the point, look, this is what America wants, not recognizing the density and number of people in urban areas that are voting. And so it appeared that the whole country wanted red, which is you know, right. yeah. kind of misleading. Isn't it? Let's pause for a second because the fact that the Republican maps are red and the Democrats are blue, like that's weird. If you just think of like the whole fact that like, I mean, who would really want to be associated with red during the Cold War, or or the American Revolution? Oh, they did not like the red. Oh, right. Yeah. The whole thing with the red and the blue that actually doesn't start until like two thousand, but it's come. It's such a part of our lexicon that like red state, blue state, purple state. It's all the rage. But before it used to just be like. Whoever was doing that particular map on that show would just choose whatever color was what. It wasn't like a a solid thing. Like it wasn't yeah. like, you know, red and blue. You know, I think we have kind of gone in a few different circles. I'm with, sorry. Really without direction, on to be fair. We had um, a direction. This seems like a time to bring in someone to give us more direction. I and think we might actually need two some, people. At least who can speak a little bit more on informational graphics than we can. Hopefully. So we would like to welcome into the podcast uh, Emma Thacker and Jeremy Stoddard, both friends of the pod. Whoa. Hi. Thanks. Hi. I'm not sure how much direction I can provide, but... <laughs> well, we're relying on you best. a lot, so hopefully yeah, some. Yeah, great. Well, that's why Jeremy's here, too. Well, you each are doing really incredible work, and our guests may be familiar with you from previous episodes, but could you remind us a little bit about what the work each of you are doing, and, and you can update us. What's new? Sure. I'll go first. I'm Emma Thacker. I am an assistant professor at James Madison University in elementary social studies methods. I've been on the pod before talking about the C3 framework in elementary, as well as analyzing some inquiry design models, a K-12. So that's that's what a lot of my work is around, um, civic education and and the inquiry, inquiry arc in, in social studies writ large. And I'm Jeremy Stoddard. I'm a faculty member at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and my work really crosses sort of media education and democratic education. So from everything from looking at how film is used in the classroom to how currently how um, kids learn about political media and the role of politics in media in a project called Purple State. Not ironically, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> so the decision to use red and blue was very important to uh, your project. It could have been an array of colors. 
Well, and I was trying to think back whether Republicans would have been around during the Revolution, Dan, so I don't think they would have cared probably about the, unless they're really all loyalists, in which case, you know, then we can make a direct connection. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I did I say that it was the parties? If so, man, <laughs> I'm very apol- ahistorical here today. I was meaning more the the British and the if you're talking about the coats, right? <laughs> yeah, the coats. Yeah, I'm, the red coats. That, it's been a long day, y'all. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. So the British wore red coats, and the Patriots wore usually wore blue, which they got from the French because the French gave them stuff. Oh. So that's what I was Sorry, everyone, for the misinformation on my part. <laughs> Jeremy, tell us more about Purple State. I know that you've talked about it a little in the past. How is that going? Have you been able to use that? So essentially, it's a kind of a, a simulation game, right, where people are able to play the role of a political consultant, right, and, and, and understand the political system through that lens. Have you been able to do more research with that? Yeah, we're we're actually building sort of a 2.0 version right now, and it's dynamic. We're essentially at a state level. Kids can research all sorts of demographic and political data about a state, and then they're charged with creating as a team a media campaign for a special interest group on a public policy issue. So they're both learning about an issue as well as learning about the role of media and politics, why they see the, the things that they do on their own sort of streams, but then also learn about media strategy and how best to either sort of mobilize voters around a campaign or to try to persuade people, which is a lot more challenging than they think. I love both of your research kind of agendas, I think, are really fantastic because I think you're teaching multiple things at once, right? Like in, in Jeremy, in your case, you're you're teaching kind of how to understand politics, but also allowing them to dive in and learn content around an issue. And Emma, I think a lot of the inquiry work is the same way, right? You learn a lot of dispositions and skills and uh, things to be able to do around also learning about an issue. So it's a real nice combination of kind of content and skill and citizenship development. If I can summarize, I think you're both doing good work. That's what I'm saying. Oh, thanks. It's heartwarming. (laughs) So you were uh, just recently published with Stephanie Van Hover in the March, April, 2019 edition of social studies and the young learner with the article entitled Reading, Analyzing, and Creating Informational Graphics in the Elementary Classroom. Congratulations. Do you mind telling us a little bit more about your article? Of course not. Um, yeah, so the article idea kind of came from some work that Jeremy, Stephanie, and I did with teachers in Virginia around creating curriculum using the Virginia Public Access Project data, which has a lot of the really interesting informational graphics that you all were talking about earlier with playing with with maps and graphs and just communicating visually. And we just got to talking about how the challenges that students might have with accessing that kind of data and yet how important it is for students to have practice, not only reading and interpreting those kinds of sources really critically, but also creating infographics themselves as a as a means of communicating what they've learned. Of course, I kind of envisioned an inquiry arc spin spin on it with, you know, asking questions about infographics and learning content through them, interpreting multiple graphics, communicating conclusions using infographics. But yeah, that that's that's kind of where the idea came from. Jeremy, what would you add? One of these things that I'm always 
sort of very pragmatic about is uh, we're seeing data visualizations everywhere. You see them in Twitter, you see them in their textbooks. You can't escape a data visualization or some kind of visual sort of meaning making that that kids at all ages are going through. So I think along with, you know, thinking about teaching reading or now the debate over the science of reading, quote unquote, and phonics, you know, I think we're also thinking about how do we actually help them to make meaning of and be a little more critical of some of the types of, of meanings that are represented in in data and visualization. Some of the things that you were talking about earlier in terms of how maps can be used to sort of misinform or can be misleading sometimes. And I think what we don't see is a lot of that at the elementary level. So it was a chance to to work together and to try to think about how would we approach this with or how have we approached this with our with our elementary and middle school students. I really like this idea, too, because um, just today I was brainstorming with my teacher candidates in my social studies and methods class and we were elementary social studies and methods class. And we were talking about different you know, products the students could create as part of this lesson we were doing. And I think they struggled around some like, what are the different things they can do? So we would you know, say that you could write a paragraph. We would say that you could record like a podcast or media. But the options felt very limited. And so I think re- bringing back in you know, creating infographics, you know, is something that could be really valuable, obviously, both as a creation, but also as something that would help them understand them better. So what what methods have you figured out are effective for helping teachers figure out how to do this? So in, in terms of how to help teachers kind of do this work, one of the first things we thought about is the need for modeling how to actually go through a single informational graphic and help students kind of pick it apart, really like the bare bones of analysis. So Jeremy had a tool at the ready that we applied here where we have students think about, you know, what, what's the title of the infographic? Who created it or who's the author of it, if you will? What labels are used? What data is presented or trying to be presented? What are the characteristics of the of the visualization? What's the source of the data, which is not always the same as the author? And then what what's the argument? As Jeremy said earlier, talking about his other work, like that that persuasive piece really resonates in infographics. But we don't always, as readers, think about those sources as trying to persuade and get that get that message across. So we thought that that teacher modeling how to do that was an important component. And then obviously, as with any new skill, then students are going to need to practice that on their own with other sources. And you would probably want to do that several times before you send students out to like communicate using their own infographics. Um, but there's lots of lots of tools out there. And some of some of them we we mentioned in the article for students to kind of create their their own infographics if they're trying to inform or persuade or whatever their purpose is in communication. I think this particular model mapped well onto sort of the taking action step of the C3 in the sense that it also aligns with um, a lot of media education theory, which is if if you have students sort of constructing these data visualizations and infographics, then they're going to be more critical or thoughtful about all the decisions that went into how they're representing a particular idea when they see other infographics. So I think one of the things you can get them to do is by actually producing one of these, 
getting them to think more critically and reflecting on why they did it the way they did, who their audience is, who they're trying to speak to, what they communicate. It's also a great way of both taking action, but also sort of developing that more critical lens for when they engage with these infographics and they're sort of out in the wild. Yeah, and I'm thinking, I mean, teachers can even use the more, you know, kind of model this in their classrooms. For example, there's lots of infographics you could make to encourage or support your students in your classroom, right? As like ways to remember like some of the approaches that we use in our class. But yeah, just like today. So what we were looking at is, of course, if you know me, we were at, this was our Hamilton day. So we listened to a lot of the musical and, and our goal was to both A, learn historical content, but both within B, critique the narrative and whose voices were represented in Hamilton. And so one of the things we were discussing as an assignment that we could conclude with was really about including, about identifying what would it mean to bring into the narrative excluded voices and people of color at the time period who really are not included in the musical. And now I'm thinking an infographic could be a good way to kind of point out to people about whose story Hamilton tells and doesn't tell, and then kind of, you know, tell that story back. And you could even add in some like, you know, quantitative numbers on which racial and gender groups are represented in the musical because it's very white and pretty male overall. And so that could be something then we could create. Maybe we'll have a product soon on that. Yeah, I look forward to reading your article about it. Be good. Oh, I don't know about an article. We'll just try to do it in class. <laughs> so what have you found are some of the biggest challenges for people using it? I would assume, though, the, the first time getting into this, it takes some time, right? And it takes some time to give students, allow them to play with it. Is it about finding the right the right sites or the right sources? Uh, what advice do you have for, for working through how to get into this, starting to do infographics if you haven't done it much before? I mean, I think with anything, diving right into some really intricate, complex political visualization with a third grader is probably not the best route. I just did it with some of my method students and elementary ones in the fall, and we started with ones that were really relevant. So similar to taking on issues in the classroom, and we tried to find something around the school that they would see. So we started with the new nutrition guidelines. So I don't know if you've seen some of those posters that are out there in terms of showing the new, now it's the plate or whatever, that shows the new nutritional guidelines. So we started with that and asked about, you know, what issues were there in terms of what is representing and even getting into sort of the, the issues of sort of power that would be there in terms of who has access to certain foods or not, who can actually follow the nutritional guidelines, right? But we started with something that you would likely see hanging up somewhere in, you know, an elementary school. That's great. I wish someone had done some critique infographics of the the guidelines, the food pyramid, right, which was apparently just completely lobbyist. It was apparently like big dairy, right, influenced it. And I was I was drinking tons of milk for no reason. Oh, my goodness. Like I was a baby goat because that's what was on the food pyramid. Were sweets at the top of it or at the bottom of it? It depends what the uh, what, you know, big candy well, like the hey, Sweetums in, Factory, in fun, what they right? decided if they're funding it, that it would be an inverted period. I was very mad about that, right? Like, as much as I know we get mad about, like, learning the myths of history in school, too, but, like, literally they made me put the wrong food in my body as a kid based on that food pyramid. I need the, some, for, we need some counter infographics. The top of the pyramid, I believe, was a really big square piece of bad pizza. <laughs> but ours were always rectangles. Yes, with with government cheese. Oh my gosh, that's I can still taste it to this day. Yeah, it wasn't. What's wrong with cafeteria food? It's not. It's it could be better. We need artisan chefs in our cafeterias, you know, 
and the students can help make the meals and learn how to be culinary. You know, sure, but it's all outsourced now. So you have like two different companies that everyone buys it from. Like it's not. It's different. You can get fake cheese from this big fake cheese company or this fake cheese company. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I think one thing. I mean, we really we we worked with this group in Virginia because that's who we had done a sort of workshop with. They'd funded us to do some workshops with teachers and to produce some ways of using some of their resources, essentially, because they do all these data visualizations, but they weren't getting into schools, even though their stuff was free. And that was sort of their goal. They found out the number one user of their data visualizations and site were lobbyists and other politicians trying to figure out who was giving each other more money so they could go and ask for more money from these groups and individuals, because they also report all the donors on the same site. So one thing that we did include in the article was, you know, thinking about where in your state are these types of data available from. Um, if you're going to try to get state level like election data or what legislative issues are out there. So one thing to tie it back to a little bit with election season coming up is, you know, to search out in your state. Where are good sources of information that are already already sort of in visual form like this or could be used to create infographics? based on sort of key election types of information that are out there because you could do you know pretty easy simple you know counting and creating bar graphs it's a great place to tie in some of your what you're doing in math with with what you're doing in social studies or the opposite if you don't have time for social studies can you make this into a you know math related activity around state politics or state issues you know this time of year you also have all of the legislation in a lot of states the state legislatures are in their full-on sort of sessions right now and so you can look at how many you know bills were submitted in each of the major areas how many actually get passed have them look at what the major issues are through that way and some of it's really hard to understand in terms of on a on a legislation website um, but they should be able to find some basic summaries somewhere that they could create some interesting infographics from that yeah, I really like that idea of integrating with math. I think if you think about the quantitative aspects of these social problems that maybe we're studying with kids, that a lot of those would translate well to visuals and thinking about how they translate and how we honestly represent that is really important so that we can also see the dishonest you know, ways that information is represented. I love that. And it's a great way for them to look at who's spending money on elections, who the lobbyists are, you know, where that money's coming from that's funding some of these things. And then they can talk about the link between where money's coming from and what bills are being submitted or things like that. If you can look for any relationships, you know, when you get up to the upper upper elementary level, maybe. Big dairy. That's where it's coming from. <laughs> I, th I think for me, too, I, one of the more powerful parts of kind of thinking through this work was how students see themselves as kind of able to create and communicate knowledge in this way. So building off of what Jeremy was saying, like if there's a an issue at their school, like their cl their class sizes are getting too big or they they want to track how many days they have inside recess when they would rather be outside playing or whatever and that the power of communicating visually to, you know, audiences young and old for me, with working with Jeremy and Stephanie, it just kind of opened my eyes to maybe something that I've underutilized in my social studies education before now. And, you know, I can help both with my pre-service teachers and, you know, obviously with their students too. kind of open that door a little bit more and, and help them see, like Jeremy said, like the 
interdisciplinary connections with math, but also graphic representation is a big part of social studies and, and is a big part of understanding social studies texts. And so just emphasizing those connections a little bit more than than personally I have in the past as is something I'm taking away from this work. That's I think that's kind of fascinating. Have them track their own what's going on in their own world to then create something based on that. It'd be interesting. Do you talk at all about like uh, like quality, like discussing that how the different ways to use the data that they're collecting, or is that something that teachers could probably go towards? We give them some really explicit sort of models of the types of um, infographics that might be used for different types of purposes in terms of the the nature of the data that you have, for example. So having them think through, here's the information I'm trying to convey, here's the types of data or evidence I have, what then would be the best sort of form to, to communicate that with, what would be the most effective way, and what's the best sort of persuasive technique that you can use to help people sort of understand your argument, maybe. That's great. Any final tips that you would recommend, just anything from doing it in your own classes or anything? I think one of the first steps is just con- considering infographics as a tool to be used in the classroom. So if, you know, if you're out there looking for sources, as I know I often am, like what's, what's, how can I communicate this besides me like bumbling at the front of the room, lecturing or whatever, to, to look for sources that with National Geographic has some really great infographics that I'm playing with on another project. I mean, I I think for me, for (laughs) teachers, it's it's getting them to pause for a second when they see an infographic and not just to go beyond sort of that first take. Right. So they see the red and blue map. If it meets already their sort of desired ideas, they're going to instantly share it. Right. They don't think about what is it actually representing or what is it based on. Right. So my goal is always to try to get people to pause for a second and actually think about what it's representing and and how that could be used to possibly lead us down the wrong path in terms of actually being sort of authentic or representative of the actual data that you have, which is that that red and blue map is always sort of classic. Right. Um, or if you look at any almost any state. And you see rural areas maybe being more red and little small areas are blue, even though it's, you know, 20 times the people that live in that one blue area than in the rest of the red area, getting people to think about it. And and then do they share it or not share it? Do they really understand what they're sharing? And I think that's, you know, when it comes down to it in the real world, that's where we're seeing a lot of infographics, right? It's on your Twitter screen. You're not even reading the story. You're just sharing it because of whatever graphic came up with it. You know, are they even looking at the source of it? Those types of things, I think, for me, is always a you know, big goal. And even for kids to start to pause for a second when they see that food plate, you know, and question, you know, why is there, you know, why isn't it tofu on the plate? Right. If we're really trying to promote things and why is it meat? Who's behind it? You know, where's the beef lobby coming from? Now it's Dan. Now it's the beef lobby. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think having them even think about that stuff for a second for kids, I think even getting them to pause and actually read the poster. I know that's shocking for more than, you know, a 10 second span, but I have faith that they can do it and that they will do it if we just encourage them to. I feel like I want to go around my school to find infographics now to take them and use them to break them down. It's like a fun game you can play. Yeah. And I want to ask Jeremy's really hard-hitting question there. Where's the tofu? I think that's really what came out of all of this. <laughs> the tofu lobby is weak. <laughs> 
the tofu lobby is weak. They need to eat more beef, and then they'll they'll be stronger. Oh. I know. I know. I need an I need an But the soy lobby is so strong. Like you, there's an imbalance. There's an imbalance there. Well, we we appreciate you both so much, and we think this is such a, a great topic and something we can think about. I mean, so much of the work we do in social studies is I think about thinking through the different sources that we have to make sense of the world and understanding them, right? And so a lot of times it's uncovering who is the source because a lot of times we don't even realize where things come from. But in this, there's a, there's a few extra layers of really understanding, just like with maps or, or with history, right, understanding a lot of the choices that went into how it was put together and understanding what purposes those serve. And so it's good social studies work. I like it. Thanks for having us on. And get some sleep, Dan. <laughs> Thanks. It's always fun chatting with you all. Thanks. Now, where can our listeners find you or your work online? Remind us. Right. I'm kind of on Twitter, at ES Thacker, and otherwise old school email at thackies at jmu.edu. Yes. I love Thackies. Everyone call call Emma Thacker Thackies, please. That's what I'm trying to start. Jeremy, how about you? I am on Twitter, usually just retweeting as I do, especially the the Onion retweets, which I very much appreciate. Lots of infographic retweets. Your biases and you immediately retweet. And I am uh, Jeremy underscore Stoddard on Twitter. And my email at University of Wisconsin is jd as in dog and Stoddard at wisc.edu. And we're very much in the land of cheese. Yes, cheese lobby, no doubt. So we really appreciated having you both on. We certainly hope to continue the discussion online, and we'll ask people to get on there and tweet at them. Tweet them some questions. We're all about sharing the learning at the Visions of Education podcast. If you're doing something fun in creative education, or you just want to send us your infographics, hit us up at Visions of Ed. We're also on Facebook and that one place that I signed us up for. And of course, if you haven't already, and really, come on. Subscribe to Vision of Education Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you'd like us to be. Like Pinterest. And if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. As always, we appreciate Zach Seitz of Wiley High School and the University of North Texas for editing these episodes. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education Podcast. Signing off. Do 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 do